Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Since the 1990s, large sums of money have been invested in training and resources for the holding of elections around the world, the conventional wisdom being that elections either enable or consolidate democracy. In a new comparative study of three Southeast Asian countries, Lee Morgan Besser interrogates this view and seeks to explain why and how dictators also hold elections. The study is behind the facade, Elections Under Authoritarianism in Southeast Asia, published in 2016 by Sunni Press. And its author is a lecturer at the Griffith Asia Institute. He's talking with me, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University and host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Lee, it's great to have you on to discuss this engaging and provocative study. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. What's the problem that the book sets out to tackle? Well, the problem is pretty straightforward in my view. What the book is trying to do is to answer a fairly simple question. Why do authoritarian regimes hold elections? If you compare them simply to democratic elections, one of the first observations one might make is this is a simple sham or or a facade put up by dictators or these regimes. What the book is trying to do is go a little bit deeper than that. It poses the question, why do they hold elections? And this is interesting in and of itself, I would argue, based on the disincentives authoritarian regimes have to hold elections just on the surface. Consider for the fact that authoritarian regimes, or at least the dictators 
that lead them, they have an ideological abhorrence to elections and the, the classical meaning of them. In the traditional sense, elections are about the free and fair choice of political authority by citizens and dictators really don't buy into that ideological justification for holding elections. Another factor, and really what motivated me to get into this research, is the risk that they pose, you know, despite the fact that elections have been held around the world by dictators and over a long period of time. There are some cases where even though they hold election, they still manage to lose it. So the People Power Revolution in the Philippines in 1986 is sort of the prototypical example of that, where Ferdinand Marcos actually lost power through a fraudulent election. Another thing that motivated the study was if you're going to hold elections, how do you get around the cynicism that they produce? If you look at some elections in Central Asia, for example, a lot of the, the dictators are claiming anywhere up to 100% popular support. And so do people really buy into this notion that the dictator is all popular? And so if they produce a cynicism, why then would you still hold an election? And then the fourth disincentive or the fourth factor that motivated me to study this question was the fact that both weak and strong authoritarian regimes hold elections. A good example was Saddam Hussein, who held a, a plebiscite in the prelude to the 2003 Iraq war, and despite claiming 100% of the vote, he still got invaded. And then you also look at maybe a stronger regime is in Germany in the 1930s. Adolf Hitler still endorsed this institution, despite how ridiculous the notion was. And then perhaps finally, if you're going to hold elections despite all those disincentives or reasons not to, why then do dictators put so much effort into them? So if you look at elections in Zimbabwe, at least under Robert Mugabe. This was a fairly big event uh, involving long speeches and celebrity appearances and the mobilization of supporters and the distribution of gifts and the nationwide tour. A real big effort for the ailing dictator. So even if the election is going to be fraudulent and they know who's going to win, why then would you put so much effort into the sham? So they were the sort of questions that motivated me, but around the central question of why do they bother? And what's the answer you came up with? Well, I came up with more than one answer. I came up with essentially four answers, basically four functions of authoritarian elections. So the first one I argued was to collect information and in particular information on two groups of people. The first one is what I call the antagonists of the regime, meaning those who support the opposition or disloyal political elites. The second group is what I called associates, so those who support the dictator or the ruling party. So an election is a good way to gain information about how much support you have within those two groups and where they are geographically uh, located. The second reason or the, the second function I argued was legitimation, which had been mentioned in the scholarship but really not brought out much in a theoretical sense. So I argued that dictators or authoritarian regimes focused on three targets of legitimation, what I called autonomous legitimation, meaning they feign conformity to the established rules and beliefs of citizens. This occurs irrespective of turnout and support, or you can do what I called mass legitimation. So they feign conformity to the established rules and share beliefs of citizens, but by manufacturing more than 90% turnout and support. And then finally, in terms of legitimation, I argued that Dictators focus on the international dimension, so they simulate compliance to international democratic norms about the appropriate method for selecting political authority, and something you mentioned in the introduction. This was occurring particularly from the 1990s onwards. And the third function 
I talk about in the book is what I call management. So dictators hold elections to manage the political elites surrounding them. They can do this through a number of uh, tactics or techniques. One is simple clientelism. So you use elections to allocate the spoils of office to political elites in return for their loyalty. You use elections for co-optation, meaning you encapsulate opposition leaders into the ruling party, which is a bit more difficult than it sounds. Or you use elections for solidarity, basically a process of calculating the selection and deselection of political elites in order to foster greater unity and deter potential challenges. And then finally is what I call succession. So in terms of managing political elites, you replace one dictator with a chosen successor, which doesn't happen very often. And the last and final function was neo-patrimonialism. So you use elections to distribute development projects, material goods, specialized services to citizens in exchange for supporting what are called the party state. They're four fairly diverse functions, but one thing I do in the book, in the opening pages, is actually tie them to a particular actor. So whether it's a dictator, the political elites, the citizens or the opposition, each function has a particular role for them to play. You talk about the functions of elections in authoritarian settings. What do you mean by functions and why does it matter for you to adopt a functionalist approach? The motive basically comes from two problems that I address with the existing scholarship and both of which have been touched on by Thomas Popinski in an article he published in the British Journal of Political Science. So what I'm trying to do is disaggregate what the traditional scholarship and what a scholar called Robert Merton referred to as manifest and latent functions. So which functions do the dictator or the authoritarian regimes actually acknowledge as their motivation for the election? So a manifest function is something that they utilize ahead of the election to whether it be gain legitimacy or manage political elites or collect information, they actually make reference to this. So they build a story about why they should receive legitimacy or they put in place particular groups of people or institutions to collect information or they very obviously manage political elites by kicking them out of the party or bringing new ones into this. So this is all very clear to see in even the secondary evidence but also confirmed by primary evidence. And then on the other hand, you have what Merton called latent functions. So these are the unacknowledged motives for elections. And these are far harder for any scholar such as myself to account for. So conceivably, they might be collecting information about their supporters and their opponents, but they don't acknowledge that publicly and it occurs in the private realm through some other means outside of elections. So what I was trying to do is to build a story about why they hold elections, but in a way that is accessible and generalizable to other contexts. And I hoped that through this functionalist analysis that I could provide a way to do that for other scholars looking at at other countries or cases. And is there something about the functions of elections for authoritarian regimes today, like those you study in Southeast Asia, that's different from in earlier periods? After all, authoritarian governments have long used elections. I think the major difference, which is not peculiar to Southeast Asia, but is peculiar in time, is the addition of competition. Up until the mid-Cold War, at least at the end of the Cold War, the modal type of authoritarianism was what the classical scholarship referred to as elections without choice, one-party elections, or what the scholarship today refers to as hegemonic authoritarianism. 
And so because you didn't have competition, some of the functions are less applicable, for example. So if you don't have competition in the electoral arena, you don't need to collect information about your opponents simply because by default they don't exist. It also makes autonomous legitimation far more problematic to claim that you're more likely to go for mass legitimation. The degree of competition has some bearing on which function is operationalized. And that's not peculiar to Southeast Asia at all, but you could certainly make an argument that this is something that's occurred at least since the, the 1990s onwards. So electorates now have choice, but I'm wondering whether dictators have so much choice. The way you present the argument is that there's a strategic choice for the dictator between whether or not the benefits of an election outweigh risks. But if today virtually all authoritarian regimes hold elections, then perhaps there's a structural constraint obligating this outcome? It depends on the political system in question and also the society and how engaged uh, citizens are, but also in particular the role of history. There is a certain degree of path dependency here in that if a dictator is new to the position but part of the existing regime, then the elections have already been in place over a given number of cycles. And I would argue that the actual function is predetermined in a way and they must adapt to it. But Also, the fact that the role of political elites and citizens and if opposition exists has a bearing on the target used by dictators. So, for example, legitimation is almost exclusively concerned with citizens. It does little bearing on the role or preferences of political elites or opposition. By similar logic, legitimation in the international sense is all about what I define as liberal and illiberal powers, whereas political elites come into the equation on things like political succession and solidarity and clientelism. Uh, so they mainly fall under the management function. So there is some flexibility depending on the, the status or the position of the dictator and his relationship to political elites. But I would argue that the political system itself, the degree of competition, the status of the government to foreign countries also has a bearing And then, of course, you bring that theoretical chapter into contact with the case studies. So let's turn to them. Which Southeast Asian Mm -hmm. countries did you study and what recommended them? This project, which was originally a PhD dissertation, began when I was watching the news of Iran's 2009 presidential election and the protests that followed, which prompted the question, well, if you can have protests after a stolen election that almost topple a regime, why would you bother holding the election at all. So that was the original case that motivated the study. But the case selection focused on Southeast Asia for a variety of reasons. Uh, Number one is the extraordinary variation we see in different regime forms in the sense that you've got competitive authoritarian regimes, you've got hegemonic authoritarian regimes, and you've got politically closed authoritarian regimes. Three main ways you can distinguish regimes according to their degree of participation and contestation. But besides that, you've also got variation in terms of whether it's a ruling party in power, whether it's a military in power, whether it's a royal household in power, or whether it's what what they call a personalist dictatorship in power. So extraordinary variation, both in terms of the political system itself and the institutional arrangement of the authoritarian regime in question. And so that variation was appealing in the sense that if I could provide an explanation for authoritarian elections that captured or accounted for at least that variation, I could provide an explanation that was generalizable to most other regions of the world and most other case studies. 
there are 10 Southeast Asian countries, but the book concentrates on three. What are they and why those three specifically? The first case is Cambodia. So it was selected because it's one of the only personalist dictatorships in the region. Hun Sen, Cambodian dictator, has been in power since 1985 and is still in power as of the timing of this interview. And so the fact that a personalist dictator could hold an election was a, a sub-question in and of itself, and that I thought it demanded its own analysis. The next case was Myanmar, or Burma, it was formerly known. It had a military regime, and so I wanted to know why would a military regime have an election? But also on top of that, you had a very strong party in the Burma Socialist Program Party, and then you had an alternation in political power in 2010. And so Burma itself was fascinating in the sense that you had a wide range of actors centered around the military, but a military that still persisted with holding elections and a military that put off elections, I should add, uh, for the 20-year period between 1990 and 2010. So there's another sub-question there. Why would an authoritarian regime do away with elections, having had them over sort of a 20-year period before that? And then the final case is perhaps uh, the most predictable in a way that Singapore, where there's been a ruling party in power since 1959, the People's Action Party, according to many, one of the most stable authoritarian regimes anywhere in the world, and also in that case, the role of Lee Kuan Yew, the founding father of Singapore, couldn't be ignored as well. So you had three very different regimes, and that difference was important to me to account for in order to provide an explanation that was generalizable outside of Southeast Asia. Let's dig into each of them a bit more if we can. We'll go to Cambodia, which you've already introduced because of its distinctive personalistic character. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a bit more about that and specifically what function did you identify as characterizing the manner of electoral politics under authoritarianism there? Work on Cambodia in the book begins with a, a historical account of neo-patrimonialism. So the argument, essential argument in this chapter is that Elections occur in Cambodia under authoritarianism for neo-patrimonial domination, meaning the party state holds elections to distribute goods and services to citizens in exchange for their vote. Okay, so this is a very traditional concept. I mean, it's basically emerged from the idea of having the patrimony on one hand and the modern state on the other, and it's sort of a blend between two different forms of domination. So the chapter itself looks at the role neo-patrimonialism has played in Cambodia since the end of World War II, and so it looks at prior elections, including one under the Khmer Rouge in 1976 that really has not been properly studied. And then the main thrust of the chapter is from the UNTAC period, the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia, which intervened in the early 90s to break the cycle of conflict that had been occurring in Cambodia. So the chapter focuses on, on the subsequent elections, the 1998 election, the 2003, 2008, and 2013. And it builds an argument around neo-patrimonialism by looking at the role of Hun Sen himself, a personalist dictator, the Cambodian People's Party, which he is the head of, 
and the role of citizens in particular. And the evidence it attempts to distill is about how patronage is distributed at the local level during elections through the institution that the Cambodian People's Party has set up, which is called the Working Group System. It's a very elaborate system in the sense that there's five levels of government and the regime distributes patronage from one level to the next and citizens receive it. The chapter is primarily about how the regime has done this, what the result has been, and whether it's been successful. And in amongst all that is Hun Sen, the personalist dictator, whereby he's amassed a level of power unsurpassed by any leader of modern Cambodia. And he's amassed a level of power whereby the ruling party, outside of elections anyway, is immaterial to the political system, I would argue. Can you explain what you mean by that? Hun Sen has accumulated enough power that the ruling party is secondary to the functioning of Cambodia's political and authoritarian system. So he's accumulated power at the expense of other political elites. And he's done this in a variety of ways. He's built up his own paramilitary security force. He's taken control of the existing chain of command of the military and the police He's appointed relatives to high-level posts. He's acted as a gatekeeper of appointments to high office uh, and things of this nature. So at least from 2005 onwards at the latest, I would add, what he has become what they'd call a personalist dictator. The ruling party can no longer credibly threaten him with removal from office. And I think this has a particular role to play in elections whereby he considers himself or he casts himself as what he calls a notorious benefactor, meaning he's above the fray of competitive party politics. He doesn't need to campaign. And that's one of the peculiar features of Cambodian elections. He rarely actually campaigns. And all of this remained true, at least up until this year, with the dissolvement of the opposition party. Let's speak about that briefly, because if in fact he's in a position that he can sustain the type of personalistic and neo-patrimonial relations that you characterize Cambodia as having in the book, then wouldn't he want to persist with the appearance of a competitive electoral process rather than suffer the opprobrium of the international community for the dissolution of that party and the imprisonment of its leadership? In theory, he would want to hold on to competitive elections because you need competition within the political system to show that your patronage is superior to the opposition's. Patronage politics, in the Cambodian sense, has required up until now some degree of competition. And he has benefited enormously from that system. But I think what's changed is he's made a calculation that the Cambodian National Rescue Party, the main opposition coalition, has garnered enough popularity, particularly before the 2013 election, that the Cambodian People's Party, the ruling party, cannot win against them in a free and fair competition. And so he's made a bet that if he dissolves the opposition party, whatever international consequences or repercussion won't be significant enough to alter his position within Cambodia. And this is dependent to a significant degree on the role China is playing as a patron to the, to the regime itself, as particularly its enormous economic investment in Cambodia and the coverage or the umbrella of protection it provides internationally, particularly if worse came to worse through a UN uh, Security Council resolution veto. So he's made a bet 
that he can get away with this and not suffer any significant consequences. But it just remains to be seen whether that bet, so to speak, will pay off. There's a lot more that could be said about Cambodia, but we have two other case studies to turn to. And so let's take a short break for a sponsor's message. And when we come back, we'll talk about your findings on Myanmar and Singapore. Sure. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books and Southeast Asian Studies, where today's guest is Liam morgan who's talking about behind the facade elections under authoritarianism in Southeast Asia. And just to note before we get going again, that a couple of the tables from the book will be posted on the New Books and Southeast Asian Studies webpage. Lee, let's turn to Myanmar. It's a challenging country empirically since the elections track from 74 to 2015 variously range across all three of your authoritarian subtypes, closed, hegemonic mm. and competitive, and mm. across a range of different and unsettled political conditions with divergent outcomes despite the dominance of the military throughout. So how did you work it all together into your theoretical framework and what did you find? Between the three of them was the hardest one to research and write, partly because of the lack of secondary material, at least available in Australia and online. So it required far more field research to both Naypyidaw and Yangon. But ultimately, the thrust of the chapter is about legitimation and in particular, the alternation between mass legitimation. So the feigning of conformity to rules and and beliefs, but with more than 90% turnout, 90% support, So this occurred from 1974 to 1985, where there were four elections under the BSPP and they win. And then you have in 1990, this historic election and historic calamity for the new military junta following the coup in 1988. The new junta wanted legitimation through this election. But this time it was all about the established rules and shared beliefs of the protesters, meaning those that had risen up in 1988, those who by and large supported Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy. And I go into fairly significant detail about how they ultimately messed up this legitimation attempt and the following two decades of political stalemate that ensued. And then towards the end of the chapter, it turns to more Recent events, in particular, the Union Solidarity and Development Party and its election win in 2010 and its election loss in 2015 to revitalize NLD. And the story here is much the same in that the election is about legitimation. In 2010, it's a concern about the National Convention, which formulated a new constitution, but it's also about international legitimation. And in 2010, I should add, we also have political succession which was the first time the management function was utilised by the authoritarian regime. And then finally, 2015, another uh, whitewash for the NLD, but this time they're allowed to assume power. And the book gets into the question of why the military would allow an election in 2015 and allow itself to lose it to Suu Kyi's party, you know, an individual that's been under house arrest for close to two decades. Why would they allow this to happen? And I try to provide an answer to that. And what's the answer? 
So the answer, I argue, in relation to 2015, basically follows the work of FINA, and it's about a military handback. So why do military regimes around the world retreat from politics and go back to the barracks? And he proposes a fairly elegant framework that once at least three conditions had been met, militaries will retreat and go back to the barracks. I mean, the three elements are that the armed forces concurs with the decision, that its individual and corporate interests are protected, and that, most importantly, perhaps, a political viable civilian organization exists for the transfer of authority. And the last part of the chapter analyzes whether these three conditions were met in the lead up to the 2015 election and finds that they were very convincingly fulfilled by the military and its civilian front party. Ultimately, for whom were the 2015 elections a success and in terms of what functions? You can certainly say they're a success for Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy. I mean, given that they'd been fighting for this opportunity for 25 years and they were finally allowed to win an election and, most importantly, finally allowed to hold government, you can certainly count it as a success for them. I think the other factor here, the other individual that's sort of been somewhat forgotten, is Stan Shui, the leader from 1992 to 2010. Despite his recalcitrance to even the idea of elections, he was a crucial part of this transition. I mean, I know there were quiet conversations that occurred between him and Suu Kyi after the 2015 election. He certainly still had to give his blessing to the outcome, given the, the power he retained. I think for him, you could chalk it up as a victory. And then Thine Sen, who was the leader from 2010 to 2015. So a simple observation would be that Thine Sen's party, the USDP, lost the election in 2015, and this counted as a mark against him, so to speak, and his party, and obviously suffered somewhat since. But I, I think the evidence I present in the book, which perhaps is the most controversial part of the chapter, is that I think they expected to lose. The 2012 by-election was a grave signal to them in the sense that Suu Kyi's party swept all but two seats, if I recall. And so this was a fairly convincing signal that citizens, if allowed to vote in a free and fair election, would side with the opposition. And there's also a few statements made on the eve of the election by Thanstan, where he admits somewhat indirectly that the election will bring about a new government. People in Myanmar are already talking about 2020. Does your model offer any insights? Yeah, I think it's probably too early to account for what kind of regime actually exists in Myanmar at the moment. According to the scholarship that I'm familiar with, it's what's called a transitional phase, meaning after the 2015 election and particularly after the assumption of power by the NLD, the regime basically has three years to decide which way it's going to go, whether that's towards democracy or whether to maintain the authoritarian veneer that still exists. So I think that's one factor that we're not really sure how to characterize Suu Kyi's leadership. Certainly her handling of the Rohingya crisis demands condemnation, but she's certainly different to Thein Sen and Than Shui and Saw Meng and you know, Nay Win and all those before her, all her predecessors. She's certainly different to them. But then in the background, of course, is the military and, and the power that it retains, especially via the constitution, especially within cabinet. And so you can't discount the military and in particular the reserve domains that it controls within the political system. They will still have an effect on the forthcoming election. I think the framework I've proposed in the book demands a bit more clarity ultimately about the type of regime that exists.
If Myanmar is difficult to categorize in terms of the nature of electoral authoritarianism there, Singapore seems to be the opposite in its degree of stability and constancy as a de facto one-party state. Singaporeans have voted in more elections than their counterparts. In the other two country cases together, they have turned out in numbers that have typically been around 95% of the eligible electorate. They've mm -hmm. elected the same party over and over again, with except in the very first election way back in 1963, no less than 60% of the popular vote. It's a remarkable story. Tell us about it. Singapore is fundamentally different from the other two cases, which is something I was driving towards. It's also, in a way, as I alluded to earlier, a model for other authoritarian regimes around the world in the sense that you have strong party control, extremely impressive economic development over a sustained period of time. So it's a model in one sense, but it's also very peculiar in another. I mean, you've got a small city-state with a relatively small population. So fundamental questions have to be asked about how replicable the authoritarian system in Singapore is. Having said that, the chapter itself tries to still examine this fundamental question. Why do they hold elections in Singapore? I mean, this is interesting insofar as you've had three different leaders in Singapore, obviously Lee Kuan Yew, the founding father from 1959 to 1990. You've had Go Chok Tong from 1990 to 2004 and Lee Hsien Long from 2004 to the present day. And so you've had three different leaders. You've had one ruling party. The military has not been a political player in any sense of the word. And so this question remains. And as, as you said, there's 13 elections that I cover in the chapter. And so I'm really trying to get out why do they hold those elections. I offer two main reasons that run throughout those 13 elections, whether from 1963 or 2015. And the first one is about, again, this idea of autonomous legitimation. So I posit that This function arises out of the People's Action Party's claim, and it's a perennial claim, that Western-style liberal democracy has to be constantly adapted and adjusted to suit the practical realities of Singapore. And this was drawn out in some of the Asian values debate that occurred in the 1990s. So within this political system, elections have been preserved because of their perceived capacity to confer a mandate on the ruling party. And they use this word very clearly, mandate. Even if the use of any other institution or the expression of any other ideas that can threaten their dominance has been prohibited. So in essence, the function of elections is a product of the fake democracy, the People's Action Party and Lee Kuan Yew in particular, institutionalized from 1959 onwards. And then the other function is management, which is again all about the political elite and their composition and how they ensure longevity. And in particular, I focus on the solidarity technique or tactic of management. So as the theoretical framework lays out, this is about using elections to select and deselect political elites to foster greater unity and if necessary, deter potential challenges to the dictator. And I argue that since 1968, at least, the PAP has managed to maintain this system, and they call it the system, the self-renewal process. And it's about the idea that Singapore's survival depends on attracting people with commitment, education, talent, vision into the government. And this is all about elections. If you follow elections in Singapore before they are announced, the PAP goes through a grueling selection process where they weed out people they perceived as either disloyal or incompetent or nearing retirement, for example, and they bring in 
relatively young, people with a strong business background in the hopes of winning the vote amongst their constituents. One of the things you point to, though, is that there's a declining turnover in the party elites that they're occupying office for greater periods than before. It's the importance of that observation. And perhaps while you're at it, you might like to say something else about the other characteristics of people who occupy PAP office. There are other important features to do with sex, ethnicity, age, education, occupation, and so on. So the fundamental point of the self-renewal process or the ideological underpinning of it is that this process, despite all the criticism that has been made of it, both inside and outside of Singapore, is that it's meritorious, meaning that process occurs on the basis of their talent, work ethic, experience, employment history, and all those sort of key criteria. So that's the key claim that the PAP has made. But the evidence I've collected somewhat painstakingly over the course of a few years is that that process that of deselecting and selecting and the meritorious criteria does not apply to what I call the winning coalition. These are the key individuals that comprise the, or that take up positions simultaneously in the parliament, the cabinet and the executive committee of the party. What I find is that there's been a cohort of political elites numbering sort of no more than 20 that over the course of 40 years have engineered this entire process and they only apply those criteria to those below them. They don't apply them to themselves. So they have this ideological foil or justification, but it's not evenly applied. And within that chapter, I talk about these individuals. So one thing I did is built a data set on every single PAP candidate from 1963 to 2015, which I think comprised off the top of my head was about 303 candidates. And I collected information on their age, on their gender, ethnicity, education level, occupation background. And what I tried to do is discern any obvious patterns on who they select and where that's changed over time and then why they select them. And I think that sort of some of the findings I got was that the average age of the candidates and thus of the party has gotten older over time, which raises severe questions about its capacity for regeneration. It's fairly balanced uh, in terms of ethnic levels or ethnicity, I should say, in the sense that the ethnicity levels match the composition of Singaporean society. One of the biggest observations was changes in education level of PAP candidates. So whereas once primary and secondary education was sort of the key criteria, now you effectively cannot become a candidate without at least an honours or master's degree. And then finally, the occupation background of PAP candidates, which was something that was actually very difficult to collect. So where once upon a time, at least in the 1963 election, you had blue-collar workers and trade unionists and party functionaries and white-collar workers being made PAP candidates. That just does not happen today. I think overwhelmingly close to 80% of PAP candidates are either managerial individuals, so people that have held high corporate office or professionals within those corporations. This raises fundamental questions about the staying power of the self-renewal process and thus I would argue the PAP itself. 
in the conclusion of the book, you draw out three of the most prevalent variations that you've captured in the preceding chapters through the study of Cambodia, Myanmar, and Singapore, and you extend them to other Southeast Asian cases. What are those three variations, and what are your findings in extending them to other Southeast Asian countries? One of the things I wanted the book to do is to be able to generalize to other cases of authoritarian rule in Southeast Asia, but more generally around the globe. And so a good portion of the conclusion is devoted to trying to do that. And the way I go about it is through situating three variations of authoritarian rule in Southeast Asia and the role of elections therein. So the first variation is what I call closed authoritarianism with military or monarchic rule. And so basically closed authoritarianism denotes the complete absence of national popular elections. So if you look around Southeast Asia at the moment, this basically summarizes Brunei, which has never held national elections, and Thailand, where the junta since 2014 has put off elections altogether. So what I wanted to do is try to figure out what I've learned from the research and see if I could apply it to those cases. And in in this regard, the example of Myanmar is particularly important. So if you look at the history of elections in Myanmar, they didn't hold elections at all from 1962 to 1974, and then from 1990 to 2010. It's the last one in particular that's most important. So in 2010, despite a complete absence of elections, Than Shui gave up power and anointed his chosen successor, Thein Sen. And so they used this institution to confer legitimacy on his successor. So there is a function of elections that can be applied to a case like Thailand. So if the Thai junta, for example, ever gets around to holding elections, the value it will have, I would argue, and if I'm trying to predict, is that the junta can anoint a successor or a ruling party and they can use elections to confer legitimacy on them. And I think that's particularly important and appealing function for these sort of regimes that haven't had a history of elections. The second variation is hegemonic authoritarianism with single-party rule, meaning a strong single party that doesn't allow any competition. And if you look again around Southeast Asia, the sort of standout cases here are Laos and Vietnam. So the Lao People's Revolutionary Party and the Vietnamese Communist Party both do this on a five-yearly basis where they hold elections and they claim more than 90% turnout and they often claim more than 90% support. So I would argue, given what I've laid down in the book, This is another example of mass legitimation, such as occurred in Myanmar under the BSPP, what we're also seeing is occurring in Laos and Vietnam. And so I think the book offers sort of a neat framework for accounting for these sort of elections. And if you look more broadly than even Southeast Asia, I think the framework could be applied to Central Asia, for example, where a lot of countries such as Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan and Tajikistan and places like that hold these sort of elections, these these elections where they appeal to the beliefs and ideas of citizens, but they importantly demand more than 90% turnout and 90% support and often get it. And then finally, the last variation, actually the most common variation in Southeast Asia is competitive authoritarianism with single party rule, meaning there's a strong single party, but they allow a degree of contestation with the opposition. So if you look beyond the case of Singapore, 
For example, in Cambodia, where this has occurred, at least up until very recently, the standout case in this instance is Malaysia. The United Malays National Organization has been in power since 1957. And so what the final part of the book tries to do is to see whether what we've learned in places like Cambodia Myanmar and Singapore is that all generalizable to Malaysia. And in that case, I find a strong role to be played by the information function and a strong role to be played by the legitimation function as well. I think the framework can be generalizable around Southeast Asia, but more broadly than that as well. You recently obtained an Australian Research Council grant for continuing your work on this topic. What's your current research project and what can we look forward to next My current research project and the one that the grant is based on concerns the question of whether authoritarian regimes around the region, around Southeast Asia, are getting, how should I say, better at authoritarian rule. Now, the question I'm trying to answer is, are they getting smarter or are they becoming more sophisticated? And if so, can distinction be made between that level of sophistication and what I call the development of retrograde dictatorship? So rather than evaluating authoritarian regimes by the type that they are, which the existing book that we've just talked about does, I'm evaluating by the quality of them. I'm making the argument that there are simply better ways and worse ways to conduct authoritarian rule. And I'm currently writing a book on that, uh, but plenty of empirical work left to do on it. Congratulations on getting the grant, and I'm sure for our listeners who have taken an interest in this book, there'll be lots more in coming years from you to look out for. Again, thank you very much, Lee Morgan-Besser, for taking the time to talk to us about Behind the Facade Elections Under Authoritarianism in Southeast Asia. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to everybody for listening. If you found this discussion interesting, then you might like to check out one of the earliest interviews on the channel with Dan Slater on ordering power, contentious politics, and authoritarian leviathans in Southeast Asia. Or for a comparative historical analysis, you could have to listen to Eric Ching talking about his authoritarian El Salvador politics and the origins of military regimes 1880 to 1940. You can listen to either of these authors speaking about their books via the New Books Network website or stream or download episodes this and dozens of other channels via iTunes, all of them free of charge. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.